And let me invite you to turn to the book of Psalms. We're going to be looking at Psalm 32 this morning. Psalm 32. And I know you shouldn't have favorites, but man, this is a good one. So I'm just going to tell you that. Psalm 32. Hear the word of the Lord. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, one man's favorite baseball player is healthy again. A family is having a cookout together. It's raining where one woman lives. Several football players just announced where they're going to be playing in college. One person got to participate in a golf tournament. One girl just hit 1,200 followers on Instagram. Another person got to go on vacation in the Mediterranean. And one other guy just absolutely loves Wendy's chicken nuggets. Do you know what all of these people have in common? All of them posted these things online and declared themselves to be hashtag blessed. If you don't have any idea what that means, it's probably better for you that you don't. But when you post things online, you can put a hashtag just to kind of sum up a thought or a feeling that goes with it. And it's become a common thing to attach to any social media post from getting a promotion to celebrating grandma's 90th birthday. One article tried to explain what people mean when they say they are hashtag blessed. It said this, calling something blessed has become the go-to term for those who want to boast about an accomplishment while pretending to be humble, to fish for a compliment, or to acknowledge a success without sounding too conceited, or purposely elicit envy. So you post all these amazing things happening to you, and you're, if you just add the little hashtag blessed, 
It's kind of your way of saying, you can't get mad at me and think I'm bragging. I said hashtag blessed. That's the get out of jail free card. And we love to use the phrase blessed whenever we achieve something or buy something or have something that we want others to see and know about, but, but don't want to look like we're bragging. So we usually attach it to something that makes us look really good, right? Well, here in Psalm 32, David is a trendsetter. He was doing hashtag blessed before we'd even invented hashtags. But what God's word tells us here is that what it tells us is blessed is radically different than what the world is telling us. Psalm 32 looks at what it really means to be blessed and who it is that is blessed. And what we see is that rather than blessing being based on something great we've done or accomplished or something great we have or are, Psalm 32's message is simple, surprising, and utterly life-changing. The message is that those who are truly blessed are the forgiven. That those who experience the depths of what it means to be blessed are not those who've done everything right, but those who've made a mess of their lives but have been forgiven of every wrong. So that's what we're going to see today. We're going to look at what it really means to be hashtag blessed. We're going to look at forgiveness, and we're going to see how those two, blessing and forgiveness, come together to give us the best news imaginable. So if you're a note taker, here's kind of the three headings we're going to be working from. In verses 1 to 2, we'll see the blessing of forgiveness. Then in verses 3 to 5, we'll see the experience of forgiveness. And then in verses 6 to 11, we'll hear the call to find forgiveness. Okay, so that's where we're going. So let's look at the first first section. Let's see the blessing of forgiveness. Look at verse 1 again with me. It says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So as we, as we look at these verses, let me just start by asking you a question. And I want you to answer honestly, not with the way you think you're supposed to answer, but answer it honestly in your heart. Who are the ones who are truly happy in life? When you think about the people out there, the ones that you think, oh, they, man, they are so happy. Who are they? What actually makes a person happy? Again, I'm talking gut level, down deep, when no one's around you, no one's filtering or grading your responses. It's just you talking to yourself. What is it that you think makes a person happy? Is it money in the bank? Is it a nice house? Nice cars? Is it success, however you want to quantify that? Is it security? Good family, lots of friends, health. When you think, if only I could have blank, then I would be happy. How do you fill in the blank? What is it that we're convinced will really give us the happiness that we all want? Well, right here at the beginning, David twice uses this word, blessed to describe those who are forgiven. And that same word is also often translated happy. 
So David's giving us right at the outset. He's like, you want to know how to be happy? I'll tell you the secret. It's forgiveness. In other words, you could read this as happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven. And right out of the gate, I just wonder, do you believe that? We see it in our Bibles, but do you believe that? That those who are truly happy are those whose sins have been forgiven. That real joy is found not in having all the nice stuff, but in having a record that's been cleared and your guilt taken away. If that's true, if David's on to something here, and and I think he is, this has two massive implications for us that we're going to see all throughout this psalm. They're going to show up again and again. Those two implications. First, if real happiness is found in forgiveness, that means the fact that we know ourselves to be sinners doesn't mean happiness is now impossible for us. Knowing that you're a sinner does not disqualify you from the hope of being happy. There is hope for happiness that's available to the worst sinner if happiness is found in forgiveness. The second principle that we see is that if real happiness is found in forgiveness, that means you can't be truly happy apart from forgiveness. So we're going to see those all throughout. But let's see how David talks about forgiveness here. In verses 1 and 2, he uses three different words to refer to our sin. Now, while they're all related, there's some overlap in meaning. Each one kind of carries its own different flavor or angle on sin. That first word, transgression, has to do with rebellion against God. The word is it's reminding us that each of us is a traitor. So on this weekend where we celebrate American independence, we scorn those villains of the past like Benedict Arnold. That's us. It's saying you are Benedict Arnold. It's as though you abandoned and ditched the American army. You just joined Al-Qaeda. You went over to the enemy and worked against God. So that's what the first thing we see is that all of us are in utter rebellion against God. And we actively oppose him and his rule over us. The second word translated here as sin has to do with turning away from the path or missing the mark. We're familiar with a similar word in the New Testament. It's basically just saying you might be trying to follow God, but what we don't hit what we're aiming at. You might be shooting at the right target, but we're not hitting it. We're sinning. The third word, iniquity, this is a, a distortion or a, a crookedness, a perverseness, something be, that's been twisted. So all these words, they refer to sin, but each brings out a slightly different aspect. And I found it helpful how one commentator brought these together and explained them. He said the first word has to do with our relationship to God, how we rebel against him. The second has to do with our relationship to God's law, how we stray from its path and miss the mark of obedience. And the third has to do with the effect sin has on us, where we find ourselves crooked, twisted, and guilty before God. So why is David, why not just use one word? Like if David's writing this, why did he have to go to his thesaurus and look up these other words? Say, What's a synonym for this? What is he trying to do here? Well, the point David's trying to make in these first couple verses is that he's trying to cover every possible kind and category of sin. 
He wants to make sure that there's no kind of sin out there that you think, oh, well, he's not talking about that. So he's trying to just throw a wide net, a blanket over every possible wrongdoing, wrong action, motive, thought, word, deed, behavior. He's saying anything you can think of that's sinful, I'm talking about that. And that's really good news. Why? Because he wants us to see that every kind of sin can be forgiven. There's no kind, he's saying, no, 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 there's no exceptions, no loopholes, no, no clauses buried down in the legalese. He's saying, I, I'm saying all sins can be forgiven. That's the good news in verse 1 and 2. And now notice how he pairs each word for sin up with a word that describes how God deals with sin. You see this? So first he says our transgressions are forgiven. The word used here literally means to lift up. So the picture that he's painting here is that there's a burden, that our sin is a burden that we're all lugging around, carrying it, and it's weighing us down, and it's actually crushing us. It's too heavy. So what does God do? He lifts it up and takes it away. Have you ever, I mean, when I was thinking about this, I was like, what, what does that feel like or look like? I thought about all these times, if, have you ever helped someone move? And without fail, somehow they inherited like a two-ton dresser that I, I don't know what it's made out of, but somehow it's heavier than any wood-made thing should be. And so you're, you're carrying it, and you're just, I mean, you're getting to the point where you are utterly spent, your arms are giving out, and then somebody who's just been standing on the side finally comes over and takes it from you, and you just, oh. You feel the relief wash over you because the weight is no longer on you. And you're, you're really happy, like, thank you that you came along because now you no longer are being crushed under the heaviness of this thing you were carrying. David says, that's forgiveness. That you, when you can't carry your sin, when you're giving out and it is crushing you, he says, God comes and lifts it from you. This can be yours when you trust in Jesus. As we sang a little bit ago, there is no more guilt to carry. And some of you are just weighed down with guilt this morning. And that truth is for you. There is no more guilt to carry. Jesus has come and he has not only lifted off the weight from you, he's put it on himself. That's why you don't have to carry it. It's not because it just got dropped, but because your Savior picked it up and took it to the cross in your place. So that now all our guilt and rebellion has been lifted away forever. The second way God deals with our sin, He covers it. You see that in verse 1? And when He covers it, He covers it for good. There was one house we moved into early in our marriage that had a bathroom that they thought would be a good idea to paint some combination of like black and dark blue, just like the, the darkest colors imaginable. So I, I remember trying to paint this thing, and so we covered it up, but you know what happens after you paint that? It shines through. You paint, we painted a lighter color, and so it took I don't know how many coats of this paint to put on the wall because the, 
the, the stain underneath, the, the darkness just kept coming through. And when God talks about covering our sin, some of us think it's kind of like that. That yeah, 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 he covers it, but sooner or later, the paint's going to dry and our sin's going to come back out. It won't maybe be as glaring or maybe as bold or in your face, but we'll know, we'll know it's there. He'll know it's there. We'll all know it's there. But what David is saying, that when God covers our sin, it is thoroughly, permanently, and unchangeably. It is covered by Jesus' precious blood. And when you put the blood of the lamb over every sin, there's nothing that comes through. There is no sin that can ever be uncovered when it's covered by the blood of the lamb. It is forever whited out and impossible to be seen again. And so that when we stand before him one day, Christian, you will be holy and blameless without stain or spot. This is what's been done to your sin. Third thing, our sin is not counted against us. And this is for all the accountants out there. This is accounting language right here. One author, oh, it's so good. He, he said, think of it like a credit card statement. So you've gone out and you have swiped the credit card of sin again and again and again. Anytime you want something or think you need something, you just swipe, swipe, swipe. And yet when you get your statement in the mail, there are no charges. You owe nothing. You're looking, there's no minimum payment, no balance. Why? How can that be? Because when God forgives us, he counts no iniquity against us. Instead, all of our charges show up on Jesus' statement. So that when he opened his statement, even though he never swiped the card, he never sinned, the charges for every time you and I did get counted to his statement instead of ours. And he paid the bill in full for the debt that you and I racked up. This same word for counted is used in Genesis 15 when it talks about the righteousness that Abraham had by faith. Genesis 15, 6 says, And he believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. So in Psalm 32, hold these two up together. In Psalm 32, we see that for those who trust him, God does not count their sin against them. And in Genesis 15, we see that for those who trust him, he does count righteousness that they don't deserve. This is God's gospel accounting. It doesn't follow the world's accounting principles. It is his own accounting measures. The debt from our sins is credited to Jesus instead of us, and the righteousness we didn't earn is credited to us by faith. And all of that is God's grace. All of it is a gift. In fact, when Paul wants to explain this idea in Romans 4, Paul, this guy who knows his Old Testament inside and out, guess what two passages he quotes from to explain this? Genesis 15 and Psalm 32. Listen to what he says in Romans 4. He says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? 
Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Paul's saying this psalm right here, this is where he goes to make sense of this and to explain this. And did you hear what he said? Who is the one to whom faith is counted as righteousness? The one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. That's the good news, friends, is that Christians are not godly people who work really hard to earn God's favor, but we are those who admit we are ungodly people who trust in Jesus to justify us instead. We know we're not good enough. We know and admit we have sin. In fact, that's where David goes next at the end of verse 2. He says, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. In other words, he's still talking about who the happy ones are, who the blessed ones are. So in other words, who are the happy ones? Those who don't try to deceive God or others or themselves about the sin in their life. He says they're not lying to themselves. They don't pretend that there is no I'm fine. No, nothing's wrong with me. 1 John 1.8 says if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. And if you live that way, friends, you will short-circuit your joy. Instead, instead of lying and pretending like that's, that's our reality, instead we confess our sin. And the question sometimes comes up, why? Why do Christians focus so much on confessing our sin? You might even wonder, why do we make it a part of our service every week? I mean, sure, occasionally that might be... A, a helpful thing, but why do we focus so much on that? I mean, do we just have some kind of morbid fascination with our own faults? Do we just, are we trying to kind of bring it down into a minor key and just make it a little more somber? Is that the point of focusing on confessing our sin? Psalm 32 tells us, no, we confess our sins because we want to be happy We eagerly pursue our deepest joy at all costs. So why do we confess our sins? Because happy is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Happy is the one whose sin is covered. And happy is the one against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Do you want to be happy? Confess your sins. That's what David's saying. That's the message of the psalm. Blessed are the forgiven. But then David goes on. I mean, that's, that's a good message right there. But he doesn't just leave it as an abstract idea to ponder. Hmm, blessed are the forgiven. That's nice. He says, no, no, let me tell you my story. Let me tell you what this looks like in a real person's real life. This is really helpful and unique in the Psalms, actually. See, there are seven Psalms in the Bible that have been historically identified by the church as what are called penitential Psalms. Meaning, these are the psalms that model for us what repentance looks like. 
They model a heart that is acknowledging its sin and crying out to God for mercy. So the other Psalms, in case you're curious and want to go read them later, are Psalm 6, 38, 51, 102, 130, and 143. And if you don't catch those and want me to give them later, I'm happy to do that. But there's a total of seven Psalms. And what's unique about Psalm 32 is that it's the only one among those seven that looks back at forgiveness God already gave. The others all look forward in hope, asking God for forgiveness that has not yet been given. But this one is David's own firsthand experience of forgiveness that God has granted so that we can learn what does it look like to experience forgiveness. And what we see are two stages. The first stage is in verses 3 and 4. Look there. It says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So when David says he kept silent, the silence he's referring to here is his lack of confession. He knows there's sin in his life. And rather than confess it, he decides to keep quiet about it. He hides it. He pretends like everything's good. Everything's fine. People see him at church on Sunday. How are you doing? Great, great. How's your week? Good, good, good. Everything going okay? Yep, yep. Just trusting the Lord day by day. But it's not fine. In fact, the sin and the guilt is eating him alive. Like a flower in the sun on a hot summer day, David's strength is all dried up and wilted. He's aching as he feels like he's wasting away. He's groaning under the weight of it all. And where is that weight, that heaviness, coming from? It was God's own hand pressing down on him. God was the one causing the guilt of his sin to make him miserable. But here's the thing. This misery is actually God's mercy. God made him miserable for his own good. He was causing David to feel his divine disapproval over his sin, not to punish him, but to bring him back. God is treating David here not like a judge punishing a criminal, but like a father disciplining his son. Hebrews 12 tells us the same thing. It says, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you were left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children. And not sons. He disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. And for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. So here in Psalm 32, God wants David to experience that peaceful fruit of righteousness. And that happiness of forgiveness. And so he lovingly made him feel the heaviness of his sin. He made him miserable in his rebellion so that he would run to God in confession 
and repentance. And my guess is that there are some, maybe many of us here this morning, who are feeling the heavy hand of God upon you. Your strength is dried up and you're groaning under the weight of your guilt. If you're honest, you're exhausted from all the work that it takes to try to keep your sin a secret. You feel your awareness of your sin just eating you up on the inside so that no matter what is on your face, in your heart, you are being wasted away. Friends, the good news is that that misery is God's mercy to you. The fact that he's making you feel awful over your sin is a sign of his care for you. He loves you too much to let you keep living in your sin. So don't be frightened. That heavy hand that's upon you is the hand of your father drawing you back to himself. The time you should be worried is when your sin doesn't bother you. That's terrifying. Because that means your conscience is being hardened and you are falling away from the living God. But as long as you feel the misery over your sin, that is God's mercy and kindness to you, drawing you back to himself. So what should we do when we feel the misery over our sin and our guilt? We do what David does in verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Friends, when David kept silent about his sin, he was miserable. And finally, it got to be too much for him. This merciful misery just overwhelmed him. And so finally, he said, that's it. He got real about his sin. He stopped living a lie and was honest about what was going on. He stopped trying to cover his sin himself. Did you notice it's the same word, cover? Only now he says, I'm not going to cover my sin. Instead, I'm going to admit and confess my sins to the Lord and trust him to cover my sins. And what happened when he did this? When David finally said, Lord, here's what's going on. Here's the sin. What happened? Did God abandon him? Did God get angry with him? Did he say, David, you're worthless? Or when he's confessing these things, did God look at him and say, again? No. He forgave him fully for everything. Nothing held against him. All that sin that David could not cover himself, God covered for him. David felt the weight of his sin being lifted from him. And instead he felt the joy of full, free, and forever forgiveness. He felt what it means to be really blessed. As David's son Solomon would later write in Proverbs 28.13, he said this, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. You hide them, it won't go well for you. But if you confess and forsake them, he says, you will obtain mercy. 
Friends, that's the news of this, is that there is mercy and blessing waiting for you. If we will just run to Jesus, confessing our sins and asking him, as we did earlier, for the mercy that he so loves to give. Which takes us to the second half of the psalm, where we find David's call to find forgiveness. You see how it naturally flows. He's already told us how good the forgiveness is. He's told us his own story. It's like, let me tell you how I experienced forgiveness. And now he turns to us, his brothers and sisters, and he calls us to find forgiveness ourselves. Verse 6, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. Verse 6, what we see is, is that it's built off a promise and a warning. The promise is that when we confess our sins to the Lord, He will forgive us. That's what the therefore hinges on. Therefore, because that's true, let everyone who's godly offer prayer of confession to Him. And I want to make a quick side note here. Don't miss how David talks about godly people here. There's so much, so much in that word in this context. When we hear people described as godly, I, I think we can tend to picture them as those, those who don't seem to have done anything wrong. The kind of people who never fail as Christians, who never fall into, into, into temptation. The people who have no sin. But that's clearly not how David is using godly here. How do I know? Because his whole point in verse 6 is that it is the godly who are the ones who should pray to God to confess their sins. The godly are not the ones who don't need forgiveness. They're the ones who humble themselves and run to God in faith to find forgiveness. In this way, friends... This is, this is not a small thing because in this way, Psalm 32, I think, can help us have a fundamental shift in how we understand the church. The church is not a bunch of squeaky clean people who have it all together and never sin. Christians are not sinless, but we are forgiven. And what separates a Christian from a non-Christian is not that we don't sin and they do, it's that when we do sin, we confess it. We repent of it and we run to Jesus for forgiveness. That, David says, is what the godly do. They run to Jesus in faith and repentance to find forgiveness for their sins. And I think understanding this is massively important because it changes the whole culture of a church. Instead of being a place where you have to cover up your struggles with sin, to keep up the appearance of having it all together so that people think you're godly, church now becomes a family of fellow broken sinners who all desperately need Jesus as much as you do and where the godly are the ones who acknowledge that and confess their sins and keep running to Jesus in faith and repentance to find forgiveness over and over and over again. And I love how God is creating that here at Chapelwood. I see it. I hear it. And so friends, let's lean into that. And let's ask God to make it all the more real and all the more true of us that that's the kind of culture we have here. Why do we want a culture like that? Because we want to be a happy church. 
And where is happiness found? Not in hiding our sins, but in confessing and having them fully forgiven. All right, back to verse 6. So the promise is that if we confess our sins, God is faithful to forgive us. Now the warning is that there's an urgency to confession. He says, let everyone who's godly offer prayer to God at a time when he may be found. He says that because there will come a time when it will be too late. God's patience is not unlimited. Confession of sin should never just be something you put on your to-do list. It's not something we will just get around to. Because the longer we wait, the harder it gets. Our hearts get hardened in our sin. We get distracted. We move on to other things. Friends, if God is giving you the mercy of knowing that you have sin, that you need to confess, do not wait. Do it right away. As Hebrews told us, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Because we are not promised that we'll have another opportunity. None of us knows. Not just how long we'll live. I think we tend to put it in that category. And if we're honest, I think younger people kind of just wipe that away as a realistic threat. Saying, well, I'm only in my 20s. Sure, I'm not guaranteed more years, but most likely the odds are in my favor. That's not the only time that our opportunity will be taken away. It's not just death. It's you don't know if a week from now you will actually have the desire to turn away from that sin. We cannot presume upon the riches of his kindness. And right now, if he's saying, if he's putting his finger on a sin saying that needs to come into the light, do not wait. Do not say, later, Lord, come to the light. If you know you have sinned, confess it. Confessing means both telling God what you've done and agreeing with him that it was wrong. It's really that simple and yet that hard. It's saying, here's what I did, God, and I know that it was wrong. Confession means making no excuses for why you did it. It means not blaming other people, not blaming your circumstances. It means fully owning and admitting your sin, turning away from it to do it no more, and asking God to forgive you for doing it. And the only basis we have for our forgiveness is Jesus. When we ask God to forgive us, we're asking in faith that because he died in our place and he paid for our sins, we're believing that those sins will not be charged against us. So that forgiveness is found only in him, which is why we run to him. And when we run to Jesus, guess what we find? Verse 7. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. What do we find when we run to Jesus? We find refuge. We find relief. We find God's strong hand no longer pressing down on us, but preserving us from trouble. Instead of hiding from God, we now hide in God. He surrounds us like a fortress. And do you see what the walls of the fortress are made of? Shouts or songs of deliverance. These songs of joyful celebration that our God has rescued us and forgiven us and will keep us. And then God himself speaks up in verse 8. He says, I will instruct you and teach you 
in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And when God promises to counsel us and instruct us here, in this context, he's not referring to guidance about what job we should take or when should we, we should retire or who you should marry. This is his promise to not just forgive our sins in the past, but to teach us how to move forward in obedience. He'll teach us the way we should go. He'll lead us in paths of righteousness for his namesake. And he'll do it, he says, with his eye upon us. He'll lead us in obedience with his loving attention and with his vigilant care. Because of that, therefore, verse 9, be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. In other words, God is telling us, don't be like these animals who are known for their stubborn resistance. They need strong pressure to guide and direct them where they ought to go. And God's saying, don't be like that. Don't be like that, my people. Don't be so stubborn in your sin, so determined to keep going your own direction, that the only way to get you to live in obedience to me is for me to keep pulling your reins and laying my heavy hand upon you. Instead, when you stray, confess and repent. Keep coming back near to God. Stay near. In verse 10, then David shows us the outcomes of the two different paths we can walk. He says, many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. And again, I really want you to see the contrast here. On one hand, you've got the wicked. But who are the other ones? Who are the not wicked ones? The ones contrasted with the wicked are not the good. They're not the virtuous. They're not the moral. Who are they? They're the ones who trust in the Lord. Those are the two paths we can walk, friends. We're either the wicked or we're those who trust in the Lord. There are no other options. And the path of the wicked, he says, is filled with sorrows. But the path of those who trust in the Lord is protected by the guardrails of his steadfast love. Everywhere they turn, they can't help but enter into and encounter his love. Finally, after all this talk about sin and confession, what is David's last word in the psalm? I mean, this is a lot of stuff. This is a lot of heavy sin, confession, so is it going to be somber and depressing word about how awful we are and how we just need to do better? Verse 11. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. But how can David call us righteous and upright in heart? Doesn't he know who we are and what we've done? Hasn't he just spent the whole psalm telling us we need to confess our sins? Yes, he knows. But he also knows that righteousness is not something we earn. It's a gift of grace counted to those who trust in the God who justifies the ungodly. So that when we run to Jesus in faith and repentance, he forgives us. So why should we be glad? Why should we rejoice? Why should we shout for joy? Because happy are those whose sin is forgiven 
and covered and blessed are those against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. So now let's celebrate this. 